I want to take time during this Christmas season, 2016, to just have a series of message about the King is coming. This morning, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6, mainly verse 6, but we're going to look at 6 through 9. The King we long for. Father, we thank you for your love for us, that you've given us the word. Lord, and you even said in your life when you were here on earth, you call us no longer servants but friends, and as friends you show us everything you're going to do. And though we don't know the day nor the hour, Lord, you've said we can look at the seasons, and even as we gather around the table for communion this morning, we anticipate your imminent return. Now, Lord, I pray that I might be spirit-filled, that we as believers might be spirit-filled listeners. And Lord, as those listen, maybe that are here, that do not know you as their own personal Savior, you're not their king this morning, that you would draw them to yourself, that they might know your protection, your love, and your wisdom, and your salvation. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. After you've gone through a few elections like some of us have, we get a little jaded, don't we? Because even if we get a great president, we know it's going to be limited. And he's going away. And the, if we get a great president, we may have a controversial House and Senate. And I'm thankful for our Constitution because it was set up in the idea that man is basically sinful. That's a good thing. So we have a balance of powers, not just one person. I've been studying our colonial times, and we are the first nation with a president. And this has been an amazing opportunity for the gospel. We are very unique people because our nation was founded on the principles of the word of God. And even our Constitution was bathed in prayer as they sought for wisdom. And yet, we read Psalm 2, and it says, the nations are just in an uproar. There's always this turning. And Paul said, as we come closer to the time of Christ's return, it's just going to get worse and worse. Israel, if you, I know in our Bible Institute, Those people have just gone through all the kings of Israel. What a mess. There are a few kings we would call good, but yet they had some big glaring problems. David, the man after God's own heart, God established him. He gave him a promise that one day his son would sit on the throne forever. We know that's Jesus. But even as a king that sought for God... He was guilty of adultery and murder and multiplying wives and making bad uh, treaties, which led Israel later after he died into the worship of Baal. His son uh, Solomon comes on the scene, and while he prayed for wisdom and discernment, he also multiplied wives, and those wives in their idolatry turned his heart away from the Lord, so he became a very sinful, unwise king. And when his son showed up on the scene after 
Solomon died, the wise men came to him and they said, you know, your, your dad's been pretty tough building all these buildings he's built with a temple and his own house and all the things he's built and the heavy taxation. Maybe we should back off a little bit. But God had already told, told David he was going to tear the kingdom away from him because of his unfaithfulness and because of Solomon's idolatry. And so his son listens to the young counselors. He said, no, no, you tell them. You tell the people. My little finger is going to be as fat as my father's thaw, uh, thigh, so get to work. He whipped you with whips. I'll whip you with scorpions. And uh, Israel, all the other ten tribes said every man to their tent, and so there's a division. God gave, raised up a man named Jeroboam, and he said, I'm going to give you the ten tribes. I'm going to let you be the king. Jeroboam took that blessing like we do all the time. We take God's blessing, and then we think it's our job to protect the, the blessing, and we become unfaithful because God gave us his blessing, so we need to maintain it. And so he decided it would be bad for the children of Israel, those ten tribes, to continue to go to Jerusalem to worship. So he set up a false altar up in northern Israel because he thought he could maintain the blessing better than God could. Well, in Israel, there wasn't one good king. One bad king after another. And there was all kinds of uprisings where they killed a king and somebody else took over. Another fellow that did God's work by killing Ahab and, and Jezebel, and his name was Jehu. He comes in. You think, okay, now this guy's learned the lessons of the former kings in, in Israel. Nope. Same deal. He maintains the worship up there. And even Judah only had a few good kings. And they rarely passed it on to their children. So it was all, you know, kind of like they served the Lord, but they didn't pass it on. And so God would bring nations in to get their attention, and they'd be at war. And we find here in chapter 8 that that's what's happened. Syria has attacked northern Israel, and after the passage we read, we see their response is, well, the bricks have fallen, but we'll build with stone. The sycamores have fallen, but we'll replant with cedars. And of all the passages after the attack of 9-11 on the towers in New York, our politicians picked this one. And God says right in the context, you're so proud. What's the attitude of America? Well, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. No, what doesn't kill you ought to get your attention. But no, no, Israel just said, oh no, this will make us stronger. And since God's not listening to them because of their rebellion, if you look at chapter 8, the last part of chapter 8, verse 19, when they say that you consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? I love this verse 20. To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, is because they have no dawn. They have no light. They don't have the truth. That was the key verse for Central Seminary that attended in Minneapolis. To the law and to the testimony. That's always the standard. It says this is going to continue. 
They will pass through the land hard-pressed, famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. When our Constitution was being formed, there's a painting done about the signing of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, all those things. And uh, it shows these, these men, some sitting at a table, others standing around beside like this, very peaceful. And Benjamin Franklin made the comment that that scene never happened. First of all, because they were coming and going, and so they signed when they got to Philadelphia. And secondly, because there was no peace in that convention. And we can thank God that he gave us that constitution. But Benjamin Franklin, when they were railing and, and just arguing, brought this up. And this is unusual because Benjamin Franklin is known as a deist. That, and they just believe that God kind of made the world like a clock, wound it up and left it to go on its own. But we see something different. He said, in this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbling applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understandings? In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for the divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. To that kind providence, we owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future national felicity. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend? I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, it is probable that an empire can rise with, is it possible that an empire can rise without his aid? That's our founding fathers. Now what do we do when there's a tragedy? We have a moment of silence. How rebellious is that? When I hear that, I hear a politically correct, empty, weak, nothing. Oh, we don't want to offend anybody. Here's what's amazing to me. Israel was the same way. The same way. They got so pluralistic in their rebellion, they didn't want to offend anybody. Do you know that it came to the place they had the worship of Baal and other gods right on the temple grounds? Is that amazing to you? It is to me. This is the God that delivered them over and over again, but we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, so let's just give honor to all the gods. But you come to verse chapter 9, verse 1, and God's going to do something else. He's going to give them a king. He's going to give them a leader that's finally going to establish once and for all government that brings peace and joy to its people. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. You see, that part of Israel sits at the north. And so whenever armies come in, 
they get run over first. And in this passage, we see both reference to the first and the second coming of Jesus. And even though those northern areas of Israel were run over by the, by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and everybody that came through to walk on them, every time God wanted to get their attention, they got the blessing of the ministry of Jesus first. Jesus made the center of his ministry, Capernaum, there in Galilee, on the Sea of Galilee. And they saw the light first. And God gave Israel the opportunity to recognize him as king, but they did not, they would not. He goes on. He says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You will multiply the nation. You will increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Now here's the promise of the second coming again. That when Jesus is the king of his people and he sits on the throne of David one day in Jerusalem, people are going to be thrilled. They're going to love him. There's not one government on the earth where all the people are thrilled about the king. Because no matter how good a king is, no matter how good a ruler is, he still has the flesh. And he's going to rule ultimately for his own good. But when Jesus comes and he sets up his throne, there's going to be joy. There's going to be the blessing of increase. Verse 4, you will break the yoke of their burden and staff of their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. Do you remember what happened at the battle of Midian, how God got victory for Gideon? Chapter 7 of Judges. God said, I, I want you to bring everybody down because the Midians were an amazing host. They were way outnumbered. But God wanted to make sure he got all the glory for the victory. So he said, bring everybody down. Now, everybody that just got married this last year, send them home. Everybody that doesn't want to be in the battle, a little bit afraid, not sure you're going to be able to win, send them home. There were left still uh, too many people. He said, now, Gideon, take them down to drink. And everybody that gets down right on their face to drink out of the stream, send them home. The ones that bring the water up to their mouth that are vigilant, you keep them. He was left with 300. I'm sure Gideon was thinking, whoa, 300 against a host? Then he gave him the battle plan. Here's the battle plan. Get yourself a pitcher and put fire inside, a lantern inside, and get every 300 horns, 300 trumpets. Now I want you to surround the camp. So that means they were pretty far apart. And then at the signal, I want you to break the lamp, blow the horn, and shout a sword of the Lord for a sword for the Lord and a sword for Gideon. And you know what happened then? They killed each other, and they ran. How does that happen? Because God does it for them. If you study history, you'll see of our own nation that President Washington prayed. And it was God's blessing that we are an independent nation today. There was no way we could defeat a great empire like Britain without the help of God. 
So when we're in trouble or we desire peace, Paul the apostle gives the instruction, you need to pray for your leaders. The prayer for our nation from our hearts should be, God, send a spirit of repentance. Send a spirit of revival. How is he going to accomplish this? Verse 6, or verse 5, we, want to, we don't want to skip 5. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be burning fuel for the fire. What he's saying here is God's going to destroy all of the armaments, all the weapons of war. There's not going to be any need for that anymore. We read in other passages, the, the swords will be beat into plowshares. We don't learn war anymore. We don't need more anymore because we've got a king. And here's the promise. For a child will be born unto us, a son will be given unto us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Isaiah 22, 22 says that to the Messiah will be given the king that's coming, the keys of David, and he will shut and no one will open, and he will open and no man will shut. This is not a king that just rules wisely. This is a king that controls everything. He's the sovereign king. He's the God king. And responsibility will rest with him. The Bible says as he sits on that throne for a thousand years on the throne of David, he will rule with a rod of iron. What that means is not harsh necessarily, but unbendable. No need for attorneys. The king knows everything. He knows the truth. If he looks at you, he can tell all things. He knows how many days you have to live. He knows what you've done. It's just truth. No need for an attorney. Justice, righteousness. The government will rest upon his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. First, wonderful counselor. Supernatural wisdom. One of the jobs of the king in ancient times was to sit at the gate and judge. People would have a business dispute or some law dispute. The king would be there and he would render judgment. We have the king, Jesus, that is wisdom personified. He is the wisdom of creation. He spoke the worlds into existence. He's the, the wisdom of beauty. He's the wisdom of knowledge and truth. And he has a compassionate heart for his own children. That's the amazing thing about our God. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, that book on wisdom says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, it says, For we have not a priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tested like we are. Therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace and find help in time of need. That's what makes our God so amazing and so awesome. It's not just keeping all the systems of the world in place. He cares to hear from his children about your feelings. Your feelings may be wrong. Our emotions lie to us. But it says we can come boldly 
to the throne of grace and find help in time of need because he's our shepherd. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we need fear no evil because the king is with us. He is the wise, supernatural wisdom, wonderful counselor. Everything he says is true. His people rejoice in everything that comes out of his mouth, unlike even presidents that we might like. About the time it seems like things are going right and they're making good decisions, then they say something. And we don't know if it was their teleprompter went bad or they just went off script. And we go, oh, man, why did you say that? And people twist their words, even when they do say something good. Not our king. The Bible says when he speaks, out of his mouth comes a sword. And it divides asunder between joint and marrow, soul and spirit. It's always truth. It's always wisdom. Then it says he's the mighty God. The word mighty is just the champion God. He never loses. In Psalm 24, there's the great chapter that says, who is this mighty God? Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. No army raised against him will ever stand. He speaks the words and they melt away. That's why when we look at Ezekiel 38 and 39, when Russia comes down, it's interesting because Russia's already there now, aren't they? They're in Syria, right on the northern border. They're establishing a military base there. They're not going away. And they're going to gather all of these other nations to come down and destroy Israel. And God's going to speak the word and they're going to be destroyed. They're going to fall dead just like the Assyrians did. Just like every nation that's come against Israel to destroy it. And God says the word and whew, they melt. There's a passage in Isaiah that says when Jesus comes back, they're going to look at each other, their faces amazed and on fire. You see, he called all these elements into being. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He called for the firmament to be created, and then he formed man from the dust of the ground. He knows how everything operates. The Bible says, by him all things consist or are held together. He is the mighty God. There's no need for fear, the Bible says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a disciplined mind. Remember when Elisha, his servant, he said, lift up your eyes and see what surrounds us. And they were surrounded by a host of the heavenly armies. When God says you are safe in his hands, you are safe in his hands. The worst thing can happen to a believer is not death. Because to be absent of the body is to be present with the Lord. And we can choose fear if you want. And if you're an unbeliever, that's all you can do is live in fear. But we serve a mighty God. This child that was going to be born is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. The Bible says in the beginning, John 1, was the word 
and the word was with God, and the word was God. Even from everlasting to everlasting, Jesus said in his pronouncement to John in Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He created it all, he spoke into existence, and one day he will bring it to a conclusion. And for those that have trusted him, we will live with him forever and ever in a new heavens and a new earth and the new Jerusalem. He's the everlasting God. He knows how long our days are. He knows how he's gifted us and what he's called us to. And this very short time we have to be found faithful is like nothing in the eyes of God. He's seen it all. He knows it all. Because he's the almighty God, he will bring it to a conclusion. Then lastly, it says he is the prince of peace. Ephesians 2 says he is our peace. He has broken down every wall of partition. He says there's neither Jew nor Greek, Gentile nor free, but all are one in Christ. And everyone that hears has the opportunity to respond. And one day it says in Revelation chapter 5 and 7 that some from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group will be there. What a promise. The Prince of Peace. Does he just wave a wand because he's so powerful and say, okay, peace, I give you peace? No, no. He won that at the cross. When we gather around the table, we celebrate our Prince of Peace who won that victory at the cross for us. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it was laid upon him, that, that burden of the sin of all the world of all time. The Bible says in the garden in Luke, he sweat as it were great drops of blood because of the agony and the misery of that sin that was placed upon him. The Bible says he was beaten for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. But he won that peace at the cross. Before he died, that's amazing to me, before he died, he cried out, it is finished. All the work of our salvation was completed at the cross. Then he bowed his head and he dismissed his spirit. He gave his life for us. And he rose again as the exclamation on the point that he is the king of kings. And he rules over death and hell. He won the peace for us at the cross. He goes on to say, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the, throne of, over his, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, uphold it with justice and righteous from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. How about you, but sometimes we can begin to think that God is kind of unattached to our struggles. That he's so powerful that it doesn't take much. This is a very important verse. This is an emotional verse. Jesus said before he went to the cross in Luke chapter 12, 49, 
He said, I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Jesus, he said, how I've longed to have this time with you where he established the new covenant of our salvation. How he longed and how he wished to be at the end bringing judgment and setting up his kingdom, but he said, I've got some work to do first. I still have a baptism to endure. The passion of the Lord will accomplish this. Isn't that something? God's not unattached. We are created in his image, intellect, emotion, and will. And God is always righteous in his emotion, but oh, how he longs to see sinners repent. And the thing is, for us as believers, he's already our king. He already rules. But are you living under his authority? John said, if you love, if you love Jesus, you'll keep his commandments, and his commandments are not a burden. It's a joy. Father, we thank you for this passage of scripture, this promise that we've seen partially fulfilled already, that you have come, born of a virgin, made under the law, perfect in your life, and victorious in your death. Lord, I pray for those who are here that may not know you today as their savior. You would draw them to yourself they would see the awful, precarious position that they're in, that if they die without you, they'll be forever lost, forever lost in hell. Lord, draw them to yourself today that they might enjoy the king of glory and your kingdom and your protection and your joy and your glory and the purposes of the king Lord, give us a heart, Lord, a growing enthusiasm to live out the purpose for which you have saved us in our time and our place, Lord, to bring you glory, the great King. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.